We'll hear argument first today in Marama versus Citizens Bank of Massachusetts. Mr. Baker. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Section 706A of the Bankruptcy Code provides that a debtor may convert a case under Chapter 7 to any to a case under any other chapter of the Bankruptcy Code at any time if the case has not been converted previously from another chapter, and that any waiver of the right to convert a case under the subsection is unenforceable. Other subsections of Section 706 uh, give rules for the Court to decide um, about conversion in the case where some party other than the debtor um, requests conversion of the case, and also provides that the uh, conversion must be to a chapter to which that debtor is qualified to be a debtor. Mr. Baker, uh, as I understand it, subsequent to the grant of certiorari in this case, your client filed for relief under Chapter 13, and that relief was denied. Uh, You're now seeking, under your petition, seeks a conversion to Chapter 13, and I guess I wonder what relief is still open to you. Uh, In the present case or the new case? What relief is open to you in this case? In other words, you're trying to get a conversion to Chapter 13. Subsequently, you've tried to apply for relief under Chapter 13, and that's been denied. So why isn't the case moot in the sense that uh, that relief is not available to you now? Um, The circumstances um, uh, of the the new case are entirely different. In fact, uh, in in the present of the new case, uh, the Court decided that he was not eligible because his debt limit exceeded the uh, statutory limitations that exist in Section 109E. Um, there's, there's a three-year time span between the two. And we believe that uh, the existing case is not moved because he still has uh, remedies that he can obtain in, in uh, Chapter 13. But if he, if he isn't eligible, the new case determined that he was not eligible because his debts were too high. He didn't incur additional debts between the time of the preceding one and preceding two. Uh, yes, sir, yes, sir. I mean, he, he didn't reduce the debt. And if he's, if we have a finding from the bankruptcy court that he is ineligible, that is number one condition to convert into Chapter 13. If you don't meet that condition, that's the end of the matter. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, say that it would be the end of the matter in the present case because the eligibility was never questioned below, was never, never a factor before. But now the there's court. been a finding, and it's an essential finding that there be eligibility. And wouldn't the bankruptcy court's finding in the later case have preclusive effect? In the prior case, I wouldn't. I would say no, Your Honor. Uh, firstly, because as I mentioned, the issue of eligibility within the uh, monetary limits was never raised below. And in fact, if you look at his schedules in the supplemental joint appendix, he's clearly within the um, statutory limits based just looking at his schedules. But that's a question you can argue on appeal in, right. and in, from the recent decision. But for the moment, you have a bankruptcy court making that determination which I think would be preclusive on another bankruptcy court. The, well, the, he, the bankruptcy court made the decision in the current case, the, the new case, but, and dismissed it. Dismissal is, in fact, on appeal to the, to the district court for the District of Massachusetts. And the, the reason is, in, in our view, is that uh, the bankruptcy court in the new case incorrectly looked back to the claims that had been filed in the prior case. Now, it's a difficult issue in some respects because there is case law, in, at least in Massachusetts or the First Circuit, which says that a debtor does not have standing to object to claims in a Chapter 7 case. So uh, the fact that a number of claims were filed, uh, uh, in our view, doesn't uh, relate to, in a prior case, does not have a preclusive effect in the new case. Now, we, we did, in fact, um, object to quite a number of claims, and the, the eligibility, and I think that ultimately once the claim objections are resolved, we will be within the statutory limits. If the, if the decision is affirmed on appeal to the First Circuit, do you think you can still argue that there's qualification for Chapter 13 after the Court of Appeals has affirmed a determination that there isn't? I'm, I don't quite follow the question, Honor. Would you mind restating? 
We have now a, a judgment that this debtor is in, ineligible for Chapter 13. If that judgment is affirmed on appeal to the Court of Appeals, can you nonetheless argue that somehow there is no preclusive effect? Yes, Your Honor, because there's a th- <coughs> excuse me because there's a three-year difference uh, between the two and substantially different facts. Um, the uh, um, the we we have to go back, I think, to the case that, that's at bar because it is those claims, it is the claims that were filed in the, the current case, that are the issue. And as I say, we are in the process of doing objections to those claims, and I think that ultimately we will um, come within them. Well, they're, they're, they're not at issue as far as this mootness question goes. I mean, you're seeking to uh, have the right to file under 13. And uh, uh, if, in fact, there's no eligibility to file under 13, you're, you're asking for the impossible. The case is simply, you know, it's just air. So I guess perhaps you rely on the fact that the case is still on appeal. Should we... Should, should we not take as a, a given that there is a judgment that you don't qualify for 13? And yet, and yet you're coming before us asking us to say that you can apply uh, uh, under Chapter 13. <coughs> doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I respectfully suggest that it does, Your Honor, because once we don't really get to the eligibility question um, <coughs> until the court below uh, dis- uh, considers it in the context of the case that's at bar. We have to, as I say, we uh, are in the process of objecting to claims and <clears throat> resolving them. Now, the... Uh, well, did, didn't you make that argument to the uh, to the bankruptcy court that found that you were not eligible? Uh, no, Your Honor, because, as I mentioned before, case law in the First Circuit up to this point has held that a Chapter 7 debtor does not have standing to object to claims. Now, in the, in the new case... In fact, um, the bankruptcy oh, judge. That's what I'm asking. Now, a Chapter 7 debtor doesn't, but a Chapter 13 debtor presumably does. So didn't you make the same argument to the bankruptcy court? In the, in the old case, yes, once, yeah. we, once we've converted and, the chapter. And, and they rejected it? No, I beg your pardon, Your Honor. No, we did not address eligibility in the present case. I don't care about the present case. I care about the Chapter 13 case, the new case. in which you've been found not to qualify for, for right. Chapter 13 treatment. Didn't you make before that court the same argument you're making now that uh, some of the debts shouldn't be counted? Uh, I did. And but, they rejected again, right? Pardon? And they rejected. The, the bankruptcy court did reject it. Yes, but he, re- but he rejected it because, as I say, up to that point, the case law had held that we did not have standing to object to the claim, so uh, we, we uh, were bound by what was, what was there. But now, you said it was only a Chapter 7 debtor who couldn't object. Right. But you were applying under Chapter 13. Right. But, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is that in the, chapter, the previous Chapter 7 case, we lacked standing to object to those claims, and in the new thir- Chapter 13 case, the Court took the Chapter 7 case claims and said, you're bound by these in the, in the new Chapter didn't 13 you obje- Didn't you object to that and say you should look at these claims afresh? Yes. And what did the Court say? That it didn't <coughs> have to or that it did so and still found them uh, uh, it, over the list? <coughs> uh, it, it, the Bankruptcy Court in the new case said, pardon? The Bankruptcy Court in the new case said that uh, there are circumstances under which a debtor would have standing. This was, in effect, a new rule of law for, the, for, that, uh, for this district. So subsequent to that decision, we did, in fact, object to a, a, quite a number of claims and substantially reduced the uh, uh, total of those claims. And I think that once... But, the and what did the bankruptcy court say? The bankruptcy court sustained our objections to those claims and, in fact, reduced the total substantially. I don't understand that. But did, did it reduce it to a level that you qualified for Chapter 13 treatment? We are not finished with the claims objection process. I believe that once we well, are... Of course th- you are. They've rendered a decision. How could you not be finished with the claims objection process if the bankruptcy court has rendered a final decision? Because the bankruptcy court rendered a final decision, which is on appeal, in the new case. We are objecting to the, cha- the, to the Chapter 7 claims in the old case. I, I apologize if this is confusing. I, it, it is terribly confusing. It seems to me that, that uh, 
the Chapter 13 Bankruptcy Court had the responsibility for determining whether you qualified under the, uh, you know, under the amount of, of, of debt. And it did so by reference to the claims that had been filed in the previous Chapter 7 case. We can't, we can't object to claims in a Chapter 13 case that haven't been filed. So procedurally, we had to go back to the Chapter 7 case <clears throat> and do the claims objections within the context of the old Chapter 7 case. Now, in the Chapter 13 case, he used the, the bankruptcy court used the total of, the, of those claims that had been filed in the Chapter 7 case to determine eligibility in the 13. In doing so, the bankruptcy court basically announced a new rule of law that, that uh, um, the claims that had been filed would be essentially, I suppose, res judicata in, in, a, in a subsequent case. But that in some cases, a Chapter 7 debtor... And, and you objected to that, I, I, I get it. Sorry? You objected to that, to that ruling. Not necessarily, because it, because it does give me a vehicle to go back to the old Chapter 7 case and do the procedural claims objections in that case, which is what we did. And we substantially reduced the, the total of the claims. What is the status of the, of the Chapter 7 case? I was under the impression it had been dismissed and um, a determination of no discharge had been made. A determination of no discharge had been entered, however, as an asset case, so it remains open. <clears throat> Excuse me, it remains open at this point until the Chapter 7 trustee makes a distribution to creditors or files his final report with the court. No, it, it has not been dismissed. But there's a determination that you're not entitled to a discharge, that's, that that has been made. That's correct. If we just if we go to the merits for a second here, I mean, you, you're saying that this word, what it says, the word is you may convert. And that means you can convert no matter what. That, the plain language of the statute says that, yes, Your Honor. No matter what. Okay, suppose they repeal Chapter 13 <coughs> before you convert. Then can you convert? I'm sorry. Would you, would you repeat that? I'm just producing examples where it's clear you can't convert. I suppose Congress, there is no Chapter 13. Could you convert then? Not if there's no, no. Chapter 13. Suppose he dies. Could you convert then? If the debtor dies? Yeah. Um, no, no, no inheritance, no nothing. Well, there is a rule, I believe it's... Even though there's no such person existing anymore, he's gone, and his whole family's gone, and there's no, no inheritor is nothing, then right. can he convert? <laughs> right. I think no. Rule 10,009 right. says, uh, of the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy... I'm trying to produce say. ridiculous examples. Well, it's not... And, or maybe, maybe, all right, so you say, even if he's dead and there's no family, he still could convert. Well, that's an extreme test of my hypothetical, but yeah. okay. What about if, uh, in fact, uh, he goes insane? No. I, I, well, again, Your Honor, the, the rule says that the debt What about if, in fact, it's, the conversion is part of a scheme to defraud millions of people in a foreign country because it'll be viewed as a signal that they should mail uh, their life savings into a particular account in Switzerland? Can he convert then? The statute is playing, Your Honor. Yeah, you say yes. Sir. I would say yes. Even though it's going to build people out of millions of dollars. I, th I, th I think the, the statute is plain. It says that the debtor may convert. No matter remedies what. Even if he's dead, even if he's insane. Even if he's insane. All right. I well, mean, then I can't get anywhere with my uh, hypotheticals. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought the answer was no, but there Mr. we are. Mr. Baker, couldn't the, couldn't the, let's say the conversion goes through. The first thing that the bankruptcy court does in the Chapter 7 converted to Chapter 13 is say, I'm going to dismiss this suit. The, the bad faith taint stays with the case. It doesn't get, you can't erase it. And so back you go to the Chapter 7. Why couldn't the bankruptcy court, now sitting as a Chapter 13 court, say, we're not going to let a debtor who has conducted himself in bad faith proceed in this court? Well, the, the bankruptcy court can certainly do that. Uh, the procedural safeguards of due process require, obviously, notice in the hearing of the court's reasons for wanting to say that. And, and yeah, but is, your, your claim doesn't rest on, on a due process denial of hearing, does it? That's not, in the, that's not the question you brought to us. Uh, the, uh, so it seems to me that Justice Ginsburg's question is, is not answered by saying, well, he'd get a hearing in that case. 
The fact remains that in that case, the, as I understand it, uh, the, the, the judge in Chapter 13 uh, could immediately deconvert uh, to, to Chapter 7, couldn't it? Well, I wouldn't say you could immediately reconvert. Again, there, there is the due process requirement that the debtor have an opportunity to be heard on the issue. Um, but, but due process is not the issue here. The fact is uh, the, the, the bankruptcy court could, con- could deconvert or reconvert to Chapter 7, uh, in, in effect, uh, uh, following the, the, uh, the, the election uh, that, the, that the debtor makes. And that's, that's so, isn't it? The, yes, then, then why would we have a, a system as ridiculous as, as to preclude the court from looking uh, at fraud or bad faith at the moment of election, go through the paperwork and the falderall of converting to 13, and immediately turn around, admittingly having the power, to deconvert? That, that would be a rather foolish system. Well, perhaps, but it is the system that Congress has given us. The Congress has said the debtor has may convert at any time, so long as it's not been converted previously. When they typically, when cases are reconverted uh, to Chapter Seven, is that typically done before or after the filing of a Chapter Thirteen plan? Uh, most of the time, a plan <clears throat> is. I, I don't do it, do, do it this way, but many, most practitioners will file a plan at the same time as they file a notice, the motion to convert. Um, but they, but they don't have to. They don't have to. That's and right. and they can convert, the deconversion could be done prior to the filing of a plan. In my, I suppose arguably it could. In my view, the the uh, statutory provisions of Section 1307 have to be applied to the question of conversion. So I think that it, in my view, creditors of, under Chapter 13, one of the prerequisites to approval of a plan is that the creditors get at least as much as they would have gotten under Chapter 7, right? That's correct. So presumably the creditors might want to see what the Chapter 13 plan looks like themselves. Exactly. 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 And, and uh, I think as the Tenth Circuit Bankruptcy Appellate Panel noted that sometimes a uh, problem debtor files a plan, gets it confirmed, pays creditors, and everybody winds up better off. Um, could the district court, uh, pardon me, could the bankruptcy court make that same determination in deciding whether or not to allow the Chapter 7 proceeding to be converted? You could make this inquiry in the Chapter 7 proceeding. He said, he said, I don't think you should be able to convert because there's a fraud, but I'll look at how the creditors come out. Did he do that? Um, and then you don't have the, uh, the, the specter that Justice Souter referred to of, of, of this transfer back and then the transfer back, which is just a waste of time. Well, again, the, the statute says that the debtor may convert except in certain circumstances. And I think that the uh, requirement of a motion to convert a case gives the court uh, uh, the procedural mechanism for looking at the case, seeing, making sure that the debtor There is well, a difference, and this is assume with me, which apparently you don't agree, that everywhere in law there are implied exceptions for unusual circumstances. I have never found an instance where you couldn't think of some exception that they didn't see. You could not bring a thing if you're insane or dead or if a death would ensue or a murder. I mean, I assume that, all right? Then the question would be, well, what about this instance? And I think the strongest instance, uh, the strongest argument for saying there is no exception here is the argument that the trustee discovers that this individual is, is, uh, is uh, behaving dishonestly, that he's hidden assets. Maybe he has a safe deposit box and he has a key. The key is, will allow him to get diamonds out of the safe deposit box and hide them. Under seven, the trustee has the key. As soon as you convert it to 13, the key is given back to the debtor who has been shown dishonest. Now, assuming you're going to have some exceptions, why isn't that a very, very powerful one? Because ultimately the, the, Chapter 13 trustee has the same powers of the Chapter 7 trustee, with the exception, as Your Honor is pointing out, of possession of property in the bankruptcy estate. But that's how Congress wrote the statute. We should not ignore Congress's command about, how, about the process of converting uh, and look for exceptions uh, to foil perceived dysfunction as one bankruptcy appellate. Well, if I could come back to a prior question, unless there's some 
different procedure required when, uh, between the two situations of denial of conversion from 7 to 13 and allowing conversion but with immediate reconversion back to 7, unless there's some difference between that's required by the code in those two situations, maybe it's because you have to, in the reconversion situation, you have to wait until the plan is filed. Maybe it's because the bad faith doesn't carry over. But unless there's some difference, I don't see what this case is about. Well, ultimately, the case is about the, the language of the statute and whether the court should re, should apply it as written. And I think that the, <clears throat> the, you can't pro, you can't provide any reason why there's a difference between those two. Do you deny that, that uh, do, do you dispute the fact that a bankruptcy court could simultaneously convert uh, on the motion of the debtor from 7 to 13 and uh, during the 20-day period uh, that's required by the rule, the rules um, reconvert? Do you, do you dispute that I, or I, bad faith? I, I dispute that the court could do it sui sponte without uh, notice and an opportunity for a hearing. If it gives notice and an opportunity for a hearing during the 20-day period, you have to give 20 days notice before uh, the conversion takes place. Is that correct? From 7 to 13? Um, um, I believe that's correct. I'm, when you file a motion, a 20-day notice is required, yes. So if it has the hearing during that period, you don't dispute that the court could do that? Or do you? Well, again, we come to the question of when the plan gets filed. The plan isn't filed until after it's converted. According to the rule, so but here the, there was there was a hearing on the motion to convert, right? There was a hearing. Yes, Your Honor. And as I understand it, uh, there was no objection to the character of that healing, hearing. There was no uh, request for an evidentiary hearing. So there was a hearing. Now. Uh, does that get wiped out, too, just the way uh, the determination that you couldn't convert? The procedure I, I, would, um, I would expect to see is that if the court saw the, uh, an issue of fact with respect to whether the case had been converted or whether the debtor was eligible for it uh, to be a debtor in the chapter to which he seeks conversion, then an evidentiary hearing would be required. Um, if the, the, the fact that there was no evidentiary hearing in, in, in the particular case here, I think, I think we have to go back to, the, to recognize the fact that most issues in bankruptcy court are decided summarily on motion practice. And it is my feeling that uh, the uh, jurisprudence of Rule 56 has to apply. If a court sees that there are disputed issues of fact, the court must schedule an evidentiary hearing. It cannot, <coughs> it cannot simply grant summary judgment without, where there's an issue of fact. So, um, so this is why I say that, that uh, on these two, the two particular points, I mean, the, obviously the question of whether it's been previously converted is very easy to determine. But as uh, was previously discussed, the issue of eligibility uh, whether the claims and the debt uh, is within the statutory limitation is an issue of fact that ultimately would, might require an evidentiary hearing. Your case does not, as I understand it, your case does not turn on the, on the question whether there was or was not, should or should not have been a hearing in this case, an That's evidentiary correct. hearing in this case. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. That's correct, because in our view, the schedules, <coughs> excuse me, in our view, the schedules uh, in this case clearly indicate that, it, that he was within the statutory limitations, at least as far as the schedules go. Mr. Mr. Baker, I have, I have a, a question on a matter that really upsets me and, and causes me to wonder how, you know, how much we can rely upon your, your description here. You, you claimed in the petition that the reason your client filed under Chapter 7 rather than 13 was that he was unemployed at the time and that he decided to go to 13 after he became employed. Uh, yet, on, uh, as shown in the, in the supplemental appendix, uh, when he filed under Chapter 7, under penalty of perjury, he said that he was employed. And at the meeting of the creditors, he confirmed under oath that he was employed. Well, what was it? Was he employed or not employed? 
On the petition date itself, he was not. And if you <clears throat> look at Schedule I, which is at page 30 of the supplemental joint appendix, at the bottom line, bottom of it, um, um, it indicates that uh, he uh, uh, was in the process of obtaining a second tenant in his, in his uh, uh, rental property and that he was, was beginning a job at about the time the petition well, started. It, it, so it says employment, uh, uh, occupation, name of employer, capital carpet and flooring, how long employed, five months, address of employment, Woburn, Massachusetts. It also says the same thing on on page 18 of the supplemental appendix. And, and also at the meeting of creditors, if you look at the joint appendix at 64A, he says the same thing that he was employed. Was he employed or not employed? Right. Did he go around swearing he was when he wasn't? Uh, uh, no, he, he, was, he was not employed at the time. If you look at page 18, as you point out, it says at the bottom, the income given is, is estimated based on a new job, which is about to start. Um, he had he had been the principal of a company called RLM Flooring, which had been closed by uh, Citizens Bank. So if he was, in fact, uh, unemployed because Citizens Bank had, had taken all of the assets of the corporation and shut it down. Um, uh, this put him, of course, behind the, the, on his mortgage. So he was very... Uh, uh, concerned about finding employment so that he could, in fact, keep, uh, get his mortgage current and, and uh, retain his home. Look on page 64A of the appendix, the meeting of creditors. Right. Trustee uh, says, uh, okay, and you now work for another entity, Cap Capital Carpet and Flooring, sir. And Mar Marama says yes. Right. And between the, <coughs> between the time of the petition and the meeting of creditors, which is approximately six, six weeks later, he became employed. Um, as I say, he was head of mortgage. He had uh, children uh, to whom he has to pay child support. Uh, at the time, he had a wife he owed alimony to, so he was concerned about uh, having employment so that he could, in fact, meet those obligations. May I, may I ask you, I may have missed some of the uh, colloquy here. Is it correct that he would not be eligible to file a, to have a, a institute a Chapter 13 proceeding if he had unsecured debts of over a certain amount? Yes, sir. And what if at the time he makes the motion to convert that you say he has an absolute right to make, what if the record then disclosed that he had uh, uh, debts exceeding that amount? What should the bankruptcy judge do in that case? The bankruptcy judge should uh, examine the claims that have been filed, if any, um, do the arithmetic um, off of the debtor. And, <clears throat> and he concludes they're over the amount, say so it's clear under the record. What should he do then? He should deny conversion. He should what? He should deny conversion. If in so fact he does not have an absolute right in all cases to convert then? It's absolute except in the two circumstances stated in the statute. One of which is, as your, as your Honor is pointing out, the eligibility. The other is that if it's uh, been previously converted, he doesn't have that right. If the court has no further questions, I'll reserve for just remaining time. Thank you, Mr. Baker. Thank you. <coughs> Mr. Brunstad. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the bankruptcy court need not sit idly by and grant a motion, which is part of an abusive scheme. The power of the court is there to deny such a motion. It's there by statute under Section 105. It's there because the courts have always had power. Under, you think 105 is an affirmative grant of power? I think the second sentence of 105A supports the traditional powers that courts have had to grant relief, to prevent or to deny relief, to prevent abuse, or to remedy bad faith conduct. The fact that the debtor has the authorization under Section 706 to convert a case cannot be construed to prevent the court from sua sponte taking action to prevent abuse. And well, that's 105A is much more limited than that. It's only if you take the second clause of that out of context and quote it as, as has been done that it looks like an affirmative grant. It says, no provision of this title providing for the raising of an issue by a party in interest 
shall be construed to preclude the Court from taking sua sponte other action. That's a much more limited, narrow uh, uh, provision telling you not to imply a negative pregnant from a requirement that a particular party raise an issue. As a source of uh, sweeping powers to to, uh, basically act as a roving commission in equity, I think that's a a, a miscitation. Well, Chief Justice Roberts, I think that in order to understand 106A, the second sentence completely, I think it's important to understand it was added to 105 in 1986 in response to a number of decisions that were holding that the courts did not have, the bankruptcy courts did not have the authority to sua sponte take action to prevent abuse, to monitor their own calendars, to make sure that inappropriate things weren't happening. And that um, Senator Hatch, when he introduced this legislation, it was ultimately enacted, the goal was to overturn cases like the Second Circuit's decision in Gusum, to provide expressly, and perhaps not as clearly as perhaps they intended, to give the courts this power. But well, I, I don't. Was that Second Circuit's decision a decision that said the court didn't have the power because uh, it had not been uh, moved to take that action by the party who had the responsibility for raising the issue? Was that the basis for the Second Circuit's decision? In part, yes. The Court also — And then, then you haven't contradicted what the Chief Justice suggested. Well, I think — I think it, 105A, the second sentence, is worded the way that it is. It doesn't say exactly that the courts may take any action uh, sua sponte. It says, shall not be construed. The fact that a party has the right to take an action shall not be construed to deny the Court uh, the right sua sponte to take an action. But I think that the implication of the statute is clear. There is this background principle, which applies not only in bankruptcy cases, but in trial court cases in the district courts everywhere, that this court recognized in chambers, that has had specific application in this court's jurisprudence in bankruptcy, in Pepper versus Litton, and other cases, that the bankruptcy courts may take action to prevent abuse. And, in fact, they must do so, because by granting a motion, by sitting back and allowing the, the court to grant relief that furthers an abusive scheme, in essence, makes the court complicit in the fraud or misdealing. We what can't do you do that. about the different structures, uh, wording between 706A and 706B? I mean, this provision says debtor may. The other provisions say that a debtor may ask a court to order, and it suggests a difference in uh, uh, who has the primary responsibility, whether it's a motion to the court or whether it's an independent action. Mr. Chief Justice, I think that the drafting conventions between the two subsections is key. 706 A says the debtor may convert, whereas other sections of the code, like 1307B, other provisions, provide that upon request of the debtor, the court shall take some particular action. Here, the use of the may, I think, the word may, I think, properly signals discretion in the court. Well, so you think under the, those other provisions, the court doesn't have this inherent power or the implicit power from 105A that you're arguing for here? Well, if you look at Section 1307B, upon request of the debtor, the court shall dismiss the case. That is an absolute right, and for a clear reason. Nobody can force a debtor to continue in Chapter 13 against the debtor's will, because Chapter 13 requires the debtor to work to pay off creditors. That would violate the 13th Amendment. So there would be no circumstance where someone could block a debtor from getting out from Chapter 13 for constitutional reasons. That's a special case. That's why Congress drafted 1307B the way that it did. Contrast that with Section 706, where the Court said the debtor may convert. Now, there are, there are requirements that, that the debtor has to comply in order to convert statutory, but there is also a debtor cannot have an absolute right to convert if it be part of an abusive scheme. I think the direct analogy is this Court's decision in Pepper versus Litton. There, a fraudulent party wanted the Court to allow a claim as part of a fraudulent scheme. And this Court unanimously said, no, we're not going to allow that, even though there was a subsequent remedy further on in the process. If you, if, given that the Court has expressed statutory authority to reconvert from 13 back to 7, why should we take the leap of conferring uh, inherent equitable authority to do something uh, when the statute addresses it in a much more specific way? Two primary reasons, Your Honor. The first reason is that it would be just pointless wheel-spinning. We, we well, have maybe, maybe not. I mean, they convert, it comes up with a plan under 13 that looks better to the creditors. I mean, just because there's fraud that offends the court and prompts it to take action prior to conversion doesn't mean that that's going to be the same situation after conversion. But the debtor could argue, in the context of the motion to convert, 
Well, um, I would like to propose a Chapter 13 plan. Perhaps the misconduct wasn't that severe, and the Court can take that into consideration in allowing the debtor to proceed. But whereas here you have a clear case of abuse, the Court should be entitled to nip it in the bud at that particular point in time, allowing the Court to senselessly say, oh, go ahead and convert. Even if it might injure the creditors. Well, the Court can take that into account. It, the Court is not is not shackled under Section 706 to deny conversion. It can consider various factors. If all the creditors were to come up and say, we know the debtor has been abusing the bankruptcy system, but we think you should allow the conversion to a Chapter 13 case because perhaps that will work for the particular circumstances. But whereas here, there was no such thing. The creditors were saying, don't allow conversion. This is part of an abusive scheme. The trustee was saying, don't allow conversion. This is part of an abusive scheme. The bankruptcy court, if the court had signed the order, now, that affects the integrity of the court. Is the court itself now not participating by allowing it to happen, this sort of fraudulent scheme? The court should be able to nip it in the bud. Debtors what, who are what limitations would you recognize on this inherent authority to, uh, to take action? Well, I think that it where, needs where to Where do they come from? Mr. Chief Justice, I think that they are the same sorts of limitations that require the district court, when it is considering invocation of its inherent powers, whether to exercise them or not. We've always sort of recognized a special situation for bad faith conduct and clearly abusive schemes. Where those occur, as in this case, the bankruptcy court looks at the circumstances, holds a hearing, as was held in this case, considers the views of the parties who are involved, and then decides. Now, it's a relatively high bar, you know, bad faith it's a continuum. Where you have the honest but unfortunate debtor abides by all the rules, clearly no bad faith implication would, would, would apply. At the other end of the spectrum, where you have a debtor who conceals assets, doesn't disclose, is found out in bankruptcy, and then as soon as the trustee finds out and is hot on the debtor's trail, then seeks to convert to get out from bankruptcy, well, there you have a clear-cut case of, of abuse that can't be tolerated. Now, I think that I think, Brunstad, are you, are you going to address the, uh, the mootness point? Do you think the case is moot? Yes, Justice Scalia. I think, candidly, the case is not moot. There's a good reason why we do not allow in our system two separate bankruptcy cases to be pending at the same time. Once a first bankruptcy case has started, the court jurisdiction attaches its exclusive jurisdiction, and I think the second bankruptcy case that was filed while the first bankruptcy case was still pending was filed without jurisdiction, and there was actually no jurisdiction because of the prior existing case. Additionally, I think we have to recognize that there were different debt levels at different times. I don't know exactly what they were, but for the first case, there was debt level A. By three years later, there was debt level B, which may well have been higher. Um, on remand, if, if the debtor were to succeed, which I uh, hope the Court uh, does not allow the debtor to proceed, uh, succeed here, um, on remand, if it were determined that with the first case, the debt levels were properly below the limits under 109E, then the debtor would be eligible to convert as far as that criteria is concerned. We do not know absolutely uh, that that would not be able to be satisfied in the existing case. Did, did you make the jurisdictional objection before the second bankruptcy court? We did not participate in the second case um, and make that objection, Your Honor. How, how, how so? Um, I think that it was primarily, it was the, the, uh, the debtor was litigating, and we did not make the jurisdictional argument. I find that extraordinary. So it wouldn't be before the First Circuit? That particular issue, I think the appeal of the second case is pending uh, before the uh, district court. I think that the, the bankruptcy judge disposed of the case uh, pretty summarily and decided that, well, this particular debtor, just looking at the schedules, does not have um, the eligibility requirements for the second case and therefore dismissed it. That does not necessarily preclude a finding upon the facts in the first case, which is still pending, that it could be converted. I think, candidly, I need to, need to uh, say that. Well, it's hardly some, a summary disposition. The opinion goes on for pages and pages. Well, this particular bankruptcy judge obviously had a lot of experience with this particular debtor, having presided over the first case as well, Justice Ginsburg. So I think the bankruptcy court was very fully apprised of the facts and circumstances surrounding the case um, with the record and having written several opinions already uh, in the first bankruptcy case, which was still pending. This case, your, your case? The current case today. Yes, Justice Scalia. May I ask this question? If, uh, 
If the remedy of not allowing them to convert to uh, Chapter 13 is denied, are there other remedies that the bankruptcy court can impose against the uh, debtor who engages in misconduct of this kind? Uh, yes, yes, Justice Stevens, but they're not tailored to this particular problem or abuse. They are remedies, for example, the denial of the discharge for concealing assets under Section 727. But that won't. Are there any criminal sanctions? There might be criminal sanctions um, for uh, willful, uh, basically, in essence, it's sort of an idea of theft, you know, by not disclosing assets. But it's a relatively high bar for criminality. But that won't protect the creditors in the Chapter 7 case. And how are the creditors hurt by this series of, of events? Well, the creditors are hurt because in the Chapter 7 case, once the bankruptcy case is filed, the trustee takes possession of all the debtor's property, which becomes property of the estate. The trustee's role is to liquidate the property and distribute the proceeds to creditors. When the case is converted to Chapter 13, under 1306, the property revests in the debtor, including any concealed property. At that point, under Section 348, upon conversion, the Chapter 7 trustee is disenfranchised. His services terminate. What debtors in bankruptcy who are perpetuating this kind of concealment scheme want you to do is say, oh, no, you can go ahead and convert, and then maybe we'll deal with it later, because maybe later on in the proceedings, something will happen. The Chapter 13 trustee might not be apprised of it. The case might go to a different bankruptcy judge. In some jurisdictions, the Chapter 13 docket is, is heard by an entirely separate bankruptcy judge. They would like you to get the benefit of delay and conversion because perhaps they can get away with it in the subsequent Chapter 13 case. Or alternatively, in the Chapter 13 case, if the debtor doesn't file a plan, then the Chapter 13 trustee, who may have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Chapter 13 cases he's, he or she is responsible for, on a checklist might simply check off no plan filed, case dismissed, in which case the creditors don't get the benefit of the liquidation, they don't get the benefit of the assets being recovered, they don't get equality of distribution under the Chapter 7 scheme, and the debtor's fraud is, in essence, gotten away with. So that is why, when a motion to convert comes up, and the bankruptcy court sees it. Wouldn't a Chapter 7 case be refiled immediately? Not necessarily, Your Honor. Not necessarily. The debtor could move to another jurisdiction. But the creditors aren't going to let him just run away with the assets, are they? Well, Justice Stevens, in many, many Chapter 7 cases, in many, many bankruptcy cases, you have creditors, most of the creditors may hold claims of $500, $1,000, $3,000. This case is unique because there happened to be a creditor, Citizens Bank, who was owed hundreds of thousands of dollars, who had an interest in pursuing the case. In many other cases, that's why one of the reasons why we have a Chapter 7 trustee, to represent the interests of myriad small claimants who collectively have no individual incentive to really incur all the cost to monitor the system. By converting the case from 7 to 13, disenfranchising that representative of all the creditors, the debtor who wants to play the game of concealing the assets and catch me if you can, can in essence get away with it. This bankruptcy judge understood this. This bankruptcy judge denied the conversion so we would keep the case in Chapter 7. The Chapter 7 trustee could do his job, collect the assets. Chapter 7 trustee be appointed the trustee in the Chapter 13, the same trustee who's now been, he's, he's terminated because the Chapter 7 has been converted, could the court in the Chapter 13 format uh, appoint the same trustee? No, Justice Ginsburg. There is a standing Chapter 13 trustee in Chapter 13 cases that handles all the Chapter 13 cases, unless for some reason that Chapter 13 trustee must recuse him or herself. Under Section 348, once the case is converted from 7 to 13, the Chapter 7 trustee services are terminated. What does the trustee do? He's not really a trustee under 13, is he? The Chapter 13 trustee... property doesn't vest in him, you've told it. It it, it remains uh, in the ownership of of the debtor. Yes, Justice Scalia. The Chapter 13 trustee is probably characterized mostly an administrative person who supervises to see that the Chapter 13 procedures are complied with, has the debtor filed the Chapter 13 plan. He's if not, not called a trustee, though. Correct, Justice Scalia. Although that's really not his capacity. In practical reality, that's correct, Justice Scalia. Yeah. 
What the Chapter 13 trustee does is, if a plan is not filed, moves to dismiss the case. If a plan is filed, may look at the plan. The plan is confirmed, acts as the dispersing agent. The debtor typically makes payments under the plan to the Chapter 13 trustee. The Chapter 13 trustee then makes distributions to creditors. And on Chapter 13 day in many jurisdictions, one day a week or every other week, the Chapter 13 trustee will come to court with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of files. They well, Chapter 13 day. Uh, in, really? in many places it is, Your Honor. And they have a Chapter 13 bankruptcy judge. Often it's assigned to the most junior bankruptcy judge sitting in the particular jurisdiction. Um, with hundreds and hundreds of cases, the Chapter 13 trustee has neither the incentive nor the resources to do the things that a Chapter 7 trustee does every single day. And, and not only that, the Chapter 13 trustee does not have the power to go after um, collecting all of the property and liquidating it. It's, it's denied that power under the statutory scheme. So it makes no sense. It's pointless to say we must, the bankruptcy judge must idly sit by, a f- grant a motion that's part of this abusive scheme, allow the case to be converted to Chapter 13, hold another hearing, have a second set of papers perhaps, only to send the case back to Chapter 7. The sense it makes is that that's what the statute provides. And it, rather than relying on this alleged inherent power that apparently is not boundless and that the bounds of which will have to be articulated in case after case after case, the statute provides a very clear mechanism to address the issue of fraud, which allows him to reconvert it back to Chapter 7 promptly. Well, I think, Mr. Chief Justice, in the Link case, the Court rejected that argument in construing Section 41B, where this the Court said, quote, neither the permissive language of the rule, which merely authorizes a motion by the defendant, nor its policy, requires us to conclude that it was the purpose of the rule to abrogate the power of courts, acting on their own initiative, to clear their calendars of cases that have remained dormant because of the inaction or dilatoriness of the parties seeking relief. Likewise, in chambers, I think the same, the same principle apply. The Court said, we don't need to wait and deal with these subsequently occurring procedures to remedy the problem, we should do it now. And that is the, ex- that is the clear import of this Court's unanimous decision in Pepper versus Lytton. There was a remedy of, of, of equitable subordination for the fraudulent claim that could have been invoked far later in the proceeding. And this Court unanimously said, no, you don't have to wait for that proceeding later, where it's clear that there has been fraud, the creditor's scheme has been, has been fraudulent, it's a fraudulent claim. The Court can act at the time of allowance of the claim and simply deny the claim. And the reason for it, I think, is the reason articulated in Chambers. The integrity of the Court itself is implicated if it has to sit back idly by and watch the abusive process unfold. Well, I still haven't gotten an answer, I think, on what the prejudice is. Who is prejudiced by the procedure set forth in the statute? The conversion takes place. The judge then says, because of this fraud, I'm going to reconvert it to Chapter 7. Who suffers under that? You well, say sit idly by, but I don't, I don't see the well, the creditors long suffer. passage of time. The creditors suffer, Mr. Chief Justice, and they, they suffer because there are additional administrative costs that are incurred that compete with their distributions. We're already talking about dividing up an, an inadequate pie to satisfy all claims in full. Having a second set of procedures prejudices the creditors. It prejudices the court. Bankruptcy judges can have thousands and thousands of cases on their dockets. To have to have a second set of procedures, a second hearing, uh, burdens the court unnecessarily. And again, it also implicates, again, I, and I think this is fundamental, the integrity of the process. Is it true or not what I said, because I, I don't know the area, that, that if, in fact, you had a dishonest uh, uh, debtor, uh, the present, the proceeding is dismissed on 7, he gets the papers back, the papers permit him access to a hidden source of resources, and he steals them, basically. Is that possible or is that fanciful? Justice Breyer, that is certainly possible. And I think that that, that, that is why Congress has said you don't have an absolute right as a debtor under Section 707 to dismiss your Chapter 7 case. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Uh, we'll hear from Ms. Black oh, first. I beg your pardon. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. A bankruptcy court has the inherent authority to sanction a debtor who has acted in bad faith by denying his request to convert a Chapter 7 case to Chapter 13. Courts have the inherent authority to take appropriate action to prevent an abusive process. Nothing in the Bankruptcy Code or Section 706 purports to impair or limit 
the bankruptcy court's power to police the integrity of its own proceedings. Why isn't the power to reconvert sufficient? The power to reconvert under Section 1307C is, in this case, where the Court is already confronted with an adjudicated bad-faith litigator, it's indirect, it's inefficient, and it's inadequate to protect the bankruptcy process. The potential for abuse — The potential for abuse is very significant if the case languishes in Chapter 13 for any period of time because the bad-faith debtor gets control over the very asset he fraudulently sought to conceal. Well, what are the odds that that's going to happen? If you have a judge who's exercised enough by the fraud to exercise inherent authority to uh, deny relief, uh, he's not going to let it languish under Chapter 13. Well, he may or may not. Bankruptcy courts have thousands of cases, and if there's an absolute automatic right to convert, a court with thousands of cases may put off that Chapter 13 reconversion into another day. Moreover, there may be uh, individual creditors without a sufficient stake to raise the issue, and the Chapter 7 trustee, who typically will uncover the fraud, cannot oppose conversion if there's a, a right to convert in bad faith. And the Chapter 13 trustee or the well, United States — tru- Why wouldn't that trustee recommend to the, to the bankruptcy judge that he reconvert it to Chapter 7? Well, the Chapter 7 trustee is uh, — he's terminated on conversion and doesn't raise Chapter 13 issues. The much more likely scenario is the Chapter 7 trustee will tell the United States trustee or the Chapter 13 trustee, but they may or may not learn about it until after the case converts. In jurisdictions where the — Why can't they just have an order to the bankrupt to disclose the asset in the Chapter 13 proceeding? An order to disclose the asset? In, in the Chapter 13 proceeding. Well, we're talking about a case the court may or may not know about the fraud, and the trustee may or may not um, tell someone in time if there's an Well, in this case, they knew about it, didn't they? Yes, and there was a basis to oppose conversion. In jurisdictions where there's an absolute right and bad faith is not a grounds for conversion. Well, whenever, pra- he, whenever he denies the motion, he must know about it. He must have reason to deny. We're by hypothesis talking about an absolute right to convert. And what I'm trying to say, in jurisdictions where there is an absolute right, the practice of bankruptcy courts is not to simultaneously convert. It does happen on occasion, but the more likely scenario is that a significant period of time passes. But the other point is that if there's a simultaneous conversion, it's a completely pointless and burdensome process. And here's why. A conversion and simultaneous conversion causes the termination and reappointment of the Chapter 7 trustee the appointment and the immediate termination of the Chapter 13 trustee, and to the extent there's already pending Chapter 7 proceedings for dismissal or denial of discharge, the conversion would appear to us to moot those proceedings and require their reinstatement. And this is a completely unnecessary waste of everyone's time May and I energy. May I just clear up one, one detail that's confusing to me? The, are the two judges, there's the same judge rule on both the motion to convert and the motion to reconvert. Yes, in the majority of jurisdictions, there are one or two jurisdictions where there are different judges, but the vast majority, it's before the same judge. But a ju- if, a, if, a, if, there's a, if there's a right to convert in bad faith, all you have is a notice of conversion, assuming the eligibility is met and it hasn't previously converted, a court may say, well, I wouldn't call it a right to convert in bad faith. It's a, it's a, if it's a right, it's a right to convert despite the allegation of bad faith. It's not a right to convert in bad faith. No one's arguing for that. Well, I think that the, our point is that the absence of bad faith is implicit in the statute because there is this background rule. When a litigant comes to a court that's already abused the court's process or seeks relief of bad faith, it is a core element of a court's inherent authority to simply deny relief. You can toss out an entire complaint when a litigant seeks it in bad faith. And we know if there was an apparent benefit to this, go to 13 first or deny it, the United States trustee wouldn't be here. We see no benefit to the debtor to require the court to convert and then reconvert. All it is is, a, is an unnecessary waste of everyone's time. And this is a core element of an inherent authority. What about the idea that the debtor can come in and say under 13, uh, look, I, whether the facts bear this out in this case or not, look, I've got a job now. I can pay off my debtors, uh, my creditors, according to this plan. And, as the statute requires, that creditors get more under 13 than under 7. That's a benefit to everybody. Well, here's why. I don't think there's any dispute under the plan. And he says, I'm sorry about that bad faith business. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and if, the, if 
Right. And there's nothing to stop a debtor who, who truly converts and has found religion and wants to come clean for arguing, let me convert. It's in the interest of everybody if I do convert. This is a, a discretionary right to deny relief. The Court is free to allow conversion. But under the plain terms of Section 1370C, the Court has the power to dismiss or reconvert a case to Chapter 7 without waiting for a plan to be filed. There's no requirement that the Court has to sit there for 15 days and see if there's a plan. A, a Chapter 7 — If the statute me. didn't provide that a thir Chapter 13 plan could be reconverted to a Chapter 7, would the Court have the inherent equitable authority to do that? To reconvert to Chapter 7? Sure. I don't know if that would be an appropriate remedy. It might be because you can have an involuntary Chapter 7 case. But on this point about a court sitting in Chapter 13, if on day one a Chapter 13 debtor files a plan in bad faith, the debtor can say, please wait, I've got a plan, I'm working on it, give me you know, a couple extra weeks, and the court can say, no, I have the authority to throw it out. And what's particularly odd about this proposal is that in 2005, a court is categorically prohibited from allowing a Chapter 13 debtor to proceed under Chapter 13 if the petition is filed in bad faith. A court can't confirm a plan. So it, Congress had no interest in protecting bad faith debtors, and they didn't after 2005, and they didn't before 2005. There's no policy preference in the code for bad faith debtors or allowing a, a debtor either proceeding in Chapter 13 or moving from Chapter 7 to Chapter 13. And we think this is a modest exercise of a court's inherent authority simply to deny relief when the court is already confronted with a clear case of abuse while the case is in Chapter 7 or the debtor has otherwise abused um, the bankruptcy process. And the, like, the last thing I'd like to say is — Well, what about the difference in language under 706A and the other provisions? 706A says the debtor may. The other provisions call for action by the court, suggest at least that the authority to convert is greater under 706A. Well, I think Section 706A is fairly read as granting a statutory right to convert absent the two statutory exceptions or the Court's proper exercise of inherent authority. But the 706 B and C just explain that the Court may do something and the Court may not, or the Court shall do something. So we think our position, it, Section 706A isn't even addressed to the Court at all. It just gives the debtor the right to convert. And it doesn't purport to limit or speak to the situation when the debtor seeks that relief in bad faith or has otherwise abused the bankruptcy process. And I'd, I'd just like to end by saying that a debtor's bad faith concealment of assets or misrepresentation of, of financial affairs is really the most serious abuse you can have in a Chapter 7 case. It threatens the very structural foundation of the code and its integrity. Does the government have any position on the, on the mootness question here? Well, our, our, our position is that it's not moot because it's on appeal. Mm -hmm. If that decision is affirmed, it would in a sense, practically be moot because there would be an alternative grounds the debtor wouldn't be eligible under Chapter 13 in any event. But we didn't see that as necessarily an Article Three mootness problem. I guess I'd been assuming, but the, the eligibility under Chapter 13, even under the present case, is a present-day question, right? In other words, we don't go back and see if he was eligible for Chapter 13 when the conversion was denied. The question would be what he's eligible We have not compared the two, the two uh, Chapter — well, there was never a Chapter 13 petition. We have not compared the Chapter 7 petition with the uh, — after this case, uh, this Court granted certiorari, then the Chapter 13. But it is on appeal to the District Court, so it's not presently moot. We'd ask for those reasons the First Circuit's decision be affirmed. Thank you, Ms. Blatt. Now, Mr. Baker. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice. Um, the first thing I'm sorry, like you to, have two minutes for me. Thank you, Your Honor. The first thing I would like to say is that having been counsel to the Chapter 13 trustee many years ago, I can assure the Court that <clears throat> Chapter 13 trustee has exercised all of the powers and uh, authority that a, ch a Chapter 7 trustee does, with the exception, as, it, as was said, of possession of property of the estate. Property of the estate remains vested, however, in the Chapter 13 trustee throughout the, the uh, uh, throughout the length of the case. It does not revest in the debtor uh, uh, until the uh, case is either dismissed, uh, the a discharge is issued, and the case is closed. So the uh, concerns about um, leaving uh, leaving a debtor to uh, do anything he wants to with property of the bankruptcy estate simply is not uh, not. Uh, a reality, and I think it does a disservice to the many chapter, fine Chapter 13 trustees that, are, that there are around the country. I, I'm not sure I understood what you just said. You said 
until the plan is filed and approved, the property remains in the in the possession of the Chapter 13 trustee? Uh, uh, no, it, it does not remain in her possession. The Chapter 13 trustee technically never has possession, but title remains vested in the Chapter 13. So is it possible if it's in 13 that then the debtor, say a dishonest debtor, could get back pieces of paper which would admit that debtor to the possession of certain property which you could then take and hide? in a way that that couldn't happen in seven. Is that possible or not possible? Uh, it's, it's certainly possible, but then again, there are statutory and rule-based remedies for that sort of activity. And our position is that those rules and those statutes are what should control the case. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Mr. Baker. The case is submitted.